This morning, I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit for the month of August and just do a little mini-series on Psalms, and so I just call it Summer Psalms. Uh, I figured it was the kind of time in the season where everybody's rushing out to do their last-minute vacation or whatever, and so some of you would be hitting and missing. And so if I did a different message each week that's not really part of a a series, that uh, that would work good during this time. And then uh, uh, in September, get back into the book of Romans. But uh, so as I was thinking of Psalms, I just went uh, to my file. uh, So this is a little bit random and said, what have I not preached on? What have I not really focused on in the book of Psalms? I'd love to go through every Psalm before uh, God takes me off this earth. And as I was looking in my file, I said, well, I haven't ever focused on Psalm 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, five Sundays in this month. I said, let's just do that. So that's how I got here. Okay, but it's kind of like that with any passage of scripture it's the word of god and it's to us and it can be really exciting when you when you just kind of open up and say well let's see what that says and uh, so that's kind of how we got here this morning and when i looked at psalm 89 i said wow it's about the covenant how many of us know anything about the covenant i said this is good to uh to think about it if you look at it verse uh, psalm 89 verse 3 i've made a covenant with my chosen. Um, you know, what is that about? And uh, over in verse 28, uh, my covenant shall be confirmed. Verse 34, my covenant I will not violate. Uh, verse 39, you have spurned the covenant of your servant. So there's a lot in this text about covenant. And there's a lot of people say, I, I don't know how that applies or how that works for me. So I want, to, I want to spend a few minutes before we get into Psalm 89, even though it's long. It's 52 verses, so it's going to take us a while to kind of run through it. We'll run through it quick. But I want you to think, because the theme is definitely on the covenant. And what is that? A covenant's an agreement. You know, make an agreement with one another. You covenant in marriage. You covenant legal contracts for different things. It's an agreement. It can be a legal agreement, but it's an agreement. And the covenants God makes with us, they are imposed upon us because He's sovereign and we're not. So He imposes the stipulations for the covenant on us. We need to know what those covenant stipulations are because this is God's agreement with us. But sometimes we don't think of that in the context of God's covenant with God. And I want you to think there for a minute. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when they talk together, they come to agreements. They come to covenants. And a lot of our life depends upon their agreements about what they're going to do on earth and to us. So to get you in that dialogue with me for just a minute, before we jump into Psalm 89, look at Ephesians 1. And I want you to begin to see how the language there is really about God making covenant with God. So let me just run through Ephesians 1. And in my mind, I'm also going to take you to Philippians 2. There's plenty of places to think about um, God's covenants with us. But Ephesians 1, beginning at, uh, say, verse 3 and down to about 14. Let me just read it kind of quickly. Verse 3, blessed be the... God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now just stop and think. How does this happen? God's blessing us, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessing us with heavenly blessings in heavenly places in Christ. This is a dialogue 
between the Father and the Son in heavenly places, verse 4, just as He chose us in Him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we'd be holy and blameless and before Him in love. This is a plan. This is an agreement. God the Father says, you know, before we create anything, uh, let's, let's create people. Let's create male and female that reproduce after their own kind, and let's make them in our image. This is God the Father's plan with God the Son, and I want to choose some of those people in you. I want them to be in you, Christ. And that sounds cool. I don't want them to be before us, holy and blameless in love. And so, verse 5, he predestines us to adoption as sons through Christ. You see, this is, this is really a, an agreement between the Father and the Son to put us in Christ, to adopt us in Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. So God wants praise through all of this. Verse 7, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. There's an introduction to these people are going to be sinners and they're going to need to be purchased with something out of their sin into righteousness. And there's an agreement that the blood of Christ will be spilt. Um, as you kind of look through, that, this is the only way this, this can happen. Verse 8, which this rich grace of God, He's lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. I mean, this world doesn't spin out of order because God in His perfect wisdom has created it such. It, but it took planning even by God to do all that He's done and is doing. Verse 10, in view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. So He's going to bring everything together in Christ Verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance. We get something out of this. An inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. There's covenant language there to think about. God receiving counsel from God. God's will. God talking to God says, all of this will occur according to our covenant. According to our agreement. Uh, verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory in Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit. Now we've got the third person of the Trinity. After people hear the gospel, the good news about Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, His part of this great redemption covenant to come into us, to, to be in us, to live with us, to seal us for an inheritance that's in heaven. Verse 14, who is given, the Holy Spirit's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now, I know that's a lot of big stuff. I just want you to start thinking big with me for a minute. Think through Philippians 2. I won't turn there because you, you know this. this. This passage where it says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but abandoned himself, uh, laid aside his God-likeness to be made a man, to be made like us, to take on flesh, 
to go to the cross, even the cursed cross, to take our cross and think about the dialogue. And God the Father says, Christ, if you will do that in Philippians 2, I will exalt you to have a name above every name. And you will be king of kings and lord of lords. This is the covenant God has with God. And the Holy Spirit will regenerate those who believe on you, Christ. And bring, seal them and bring them into glory. Now just stop. Let's make it real practical. If God doesn't covenant with God, if God doesn't have an agreement to do all of these things, where does it leave us? Without God's covenant, so this is why you need covenant. Without God's covenants with God, there's no redemption. There's no election. There's no God choosing people to be His own there's no sending of Christ. There's no spilling of Christ's blood. There's no sending of the Holy Spirit. There's no regeneration. There's no heaven. Covenant is not boring stuff. Covenant's the big stuff. And a lot of times we... Well, I just don't understand covenant. We don't sit around a lot of times and drink our bourbon and say, let's talk about how God talks to God. Maybe we should. You know, we could learn some things. When we say, what does the Bible say about God's counsel and God's will and God's predeterminations? How did He plan us here? And where does that take us? And why is that important? So when we get to Psalm 89, I don't want you to say, oh, long Psalm, covenant. Oh, man, boring, boring, boring. Not. We need to get it. And I think the psalmist in Psalm 89, he's struggling with covenant. Because he's writing in the Old Covenant. He's writing in the Old Testament. And he gets to the end of the psalm and you're going to see, it just drives him to the New Testament. Because he knows he doesn't have enough. His hope is that God has a plan bigger than just Old Covenant and Old Testament. And it must go forward. And it must go into Christ. And you'll see that as you, as you just think through it um, as we look at it. So let's go back to Psalm 89. I just want to just kind of get you into a covenant mindset, a covenant state of mind, so that you can start going through this psalm with me. This is uh, a psalm that is written. You don't see this often, but if you've got a little note in your Bible, this is a psalm that's written by Ethan the Ezraite. So this is a psalm by Ethan. How many of you knew that Ethan wrote a psalm? There it is. And it starts out, it's a great psalm. Um, the psalm is probably written about, and you'll see this as we go through it, it's, it's a psalm that's written about the destruction of Jerusalem under the kingdom of, of the national church under the Jews, and them falling away and going into exile. You see that, verse uh, 39 You've um, spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. Well, that's just an illustration that the, the, the crown's off of a king. And the crown is laying in the dust. So where else in the Bible do you have that language? If you look over at Jeremiah 13, you have that language. And that, that language there describes... Uh, the time frame that I think we're dealing with. Jeremiah 13, uh, verse 18 and 19 says, Say to the king, 
and the queen mother. Take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. So there's the same language. The, the king's, king and queen's crown are laying in the dust. And it tells you the time frame, verse 19. The cities of the Negev have been locked up and there's no one to open them. All Judah has been carried into exile, wholly carried into exile. Well, I think that's what Psalm 89 is writing about. The time when the covenant that God made with the national church is broken. God raised up a people. He raised up a king, put, put him on a throne, gave him a crown, and now the crown's off. And the people are carried into exile. So what do we do now if the covenant's broken? Can God's covenant be broken? That's a serious issue. So now that you kind of understand the time frame, of the subject matter, let's, let's just go through it verse by verse and look at it. It begins with singing. Um, as you would expect, when you start thinking about God's covenant with, with God and His plans for us, you can't help but to, to want to praise Him because it's good. We would be nothing without this covenant. Verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. Got to. It would be crazy not to thank God for His goodness and His mercy, His loving kindness to create us and to give us such to all generations. This should go on and on. I will make known to uh, your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So here's a remembrance of just God saying, I want to choose a people. I'm going to choose Jews. And I'm going to raise them up. And they're going to have a capital. And they're going to have a king. And they're going to be a special people. And it's going to go on and on and on for generations and generations. And it's like, let's sing. Let's thank God. Let's, let's praise Him. That's good stuff. Uh, it's based on good doctrine. It's based on... God doing something for us, being gracious. It's not about us earning a right to heaven. It's God coming down and choosing to bring us to himself. Um, certainly something worth singing about. Uh, it goes on, his passion. The heavens, verse 5. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. Remember that phrase, the holy ones here for a minute. Verse 6. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? And God greatly feared in the council, a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around him. Now what the psalmist is doing is says, stop and think about God for a minute. Uh, who, does, who is he like? Who, does, who do we compare him to? And he mentions this group, he says, your faithfulness, it's, it's, it's known in the assembly of the holy ones. And he says, you know, think about the holy ones. Uh, who among the sons of the mighty? Who, who among the most mighty men we know in Scripture is like God? Can we, can we compare him? And so for, for me, I, had, I stopped a minute when I read that. I said, okay, who do I know in Scripture that just stands out? I thought of Enoch. Enoch, in, in Genesis, it says, 
And he was so holy. He walked with God, and God took him. Enoch didn't even have to go to the grave. God just took him. I mean, that's a special man to, to have that kind of relationship with God. Or you think about Moses. It starts from his birth. He was beautiful as a baby. So beautiful they just couldn't destroy him in the river. And Moses grows up very intelligent, wise, and a hunk, and talks with God. He messed up a few times, not much. And then he shows up in the New Testament. Christ brings Moses down from heaven to see the promised land at the Mount of Transfiguration and counsels with Moses. I was like, that's pretty cool. Or, or you think of somebody like Daniel. That was the next guy in my mind went as to Daniel. Daniel was so righteous that his buddies tried to find a sin. Let's, let's, let's discover a sin and get him locked up for it. They couldn't find one. I mean, it will not take you long to find a sin in my life. I mean, every one of you could do it. Doesn't take a college education. Sinner, you know. So now, take, take my three guys, Enoch, Moses, and Daniel. Let's suppose they are the holy ones having a little assembly in heaven. While they're having this holy assembly, Jesus opens the door and comes in, and they all fall down and worship. That's what the psalmist is saying. There's no one to compare God to. When God shows up, even the holy ones say it's too much. He's too holy. He's too great. He's too mighty. He's too powerful. How could he possibly love us so? And he does. And that's where the psalmist is trying to get us to see. God makes agreements, covenants with God and to us. And it just overwhelms us. So that we should love him and praise him. The holy ones do. We should too. Verse 8. O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness surrounds, also surrounds you. Your rule, the swelling of the sea, when its uh, waves rise, you steal them. You yourself crush Rahab like one who was slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The Rahab uh, language there is probably a, a uh, symbolical reference to Egypt. And so it, it's, it's really not the main point, and it's not a complicated one either. What he's saying is that God is so great. He's greater than all of the holy ones. He's greater than all the good guys. He's also greater than your worst enemies, like Egypt. And, and all of those, he's, he's just mighty. He's greater than all, and there's no one to compare him to. That's really the point. Verse 11, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains. You have founded them, the north and the south, you created them. Tabor and Hermon, shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm, your hand is mighty, your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Oh, Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. Let me just stop and think about that. Do you know the joyful sound 
Do you sometimes hear Jesus walking? Often think of the sound of sandaled feet and seeing Jesus light up his word, light up his people and change us. What a joyful sound when Jesus is with us and among us and we stop to think about his plans for us, all that he's done for us, all that he will do for us, how blessed we really are uh, as a people. Um, it goes on, in your name, verse 16, in your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted, for you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. Horn, again, symbolical of leadership. Even our leadership is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord and our king to the Holy One of Israel. It's just a real blessing to have God in our lives. It blesses us in every way. Um, I, we need that kind of application. You know, you stop and think, I'm a covenant person. Because of that covenant, I rejoice all day long. God has a plan for me, a wonderful plan for me. And he's always faithful to see his plans through. And there's illustration after illustration of that. In all of our lives, in all of the world, God is faithful, he's just, he does what he says. And it's loving and it's merciful and the psalmist says, that's the good news. It's really great. Well, uh, let's move on. Verse 19. Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I've given help to one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. So now he's taking us to that time frame where he's making the people of God, the Jewish people, he's making them a national entity. He's making them a world power. And that happens under David. David takes the national church to world power status. When the capital goes to Jerusalem and David increases his army and defeats all of his enemies, and the whole world at that point knows the world power, it's not America, we didn't exist yet, it's, it's Jerusalem, it's the Jews, it's under King David. He was the world ruler and leader and God's the one who made all that happen. He says, I, I found one. I helped him out. I made him mighty and strong. And I did all of that. Verse 20, I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him and with whom my hand will be established. Uh, my arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name, his horn, so his leadership, will be exalted. Then I also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. And he will cry to me, you're my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So God's made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with Noah, with others through the, the Bible. He says, I'm going to confirm my agreement for a people, a chosen one, to David. And he does that. And I will establish, verse 29, his descendants forever, and his throne as the days of heaven if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, well, we just the tone just changed. Did you catch that? 
If his sons forsake my law, this is the first clue that you have the covenant's conditional. Some of the blessings of the covenant are conditional. If, if my people that I choose and raise up and exalt and bless, if they obey conditional parts of the covenant, if they obey and they walk in my judgments. Now, if they don't, Verse 31, if they violate my statutes and don't keep my commandments, verse 32, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate. Um, What an interesting switch, you know, we have to do something here. We have to obey. We, or God says, I'm going to come punish. But it's interesting, in, the, in that conditional part of the covenant, God says, as for me, as for God, I'm going to be faithful. When you mess up, I'm going to be faithful. When you blow it, I'm going to be faithful. I won't violate my part of the agreement. I will not ever cease to be righteous and just. I will not cease to be perfect. I will not cease to be God. Just because you mess up doesn't mean it's all over and I'm, I've lost it. No, I'm still in charge. And I'm not going to violate my covenant. Um, verse 35, or verse 34, I will not violate my covenant, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. If, if words come out of God's mouth, you can count on them to be perfect and true and right. He won't change them. He doesn't lie. Verse 35, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever. His throne as the sun before me, and it shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Like, you can count on this. You can take this to the bank. I made a covenant. I made an agreement. I imposed one on David. And even though he dies, I'm going to carry this through. And you can count on it. And the heavens are a sign. A lot of our love songs are based on these signs in the sky. I'm trying to think of one. Um, uh, Tracy Lawrence, you know, great country singer, says, As long as there's stars over Texas, darling, I'll hang the moon for you. You, you, you get it. As long as the sun shines, as long as the moon shines, as long as there is a heaven, I will be faithful. And God uses the same language. He says, I will exceed the faithfulness of the sun and the moon and the heavens. You can count on it. I will not violate covenant. Once I make an agreement, it's there. And because before the foundation of the world, the counsel of his will, God speaks to God and they come up with a perfect plan. There's no need to alter it, no need to change it. And he doesn't violate it. Now, when you get to verse 38, the whole tempo changes of this song. Verse 38 But you have cast off and rejected, you have been full of wrath against your. Anointed. That's where I got the language for the outline. Oh, my outline is not up there. Okay. But God has cast off 
the old covenant is cast off. It's rejected. Why? Because they disobeyed. They didn't take seriously the conditional aspects of the covenant. All of God's faithfulness and love comes to us as we obey. Not to earn it. It's grace. But he wants a certain response. Verse 39, you have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. It's like you didn't follow David and all the things he told you to do in worship. Verse 40, you have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who passed along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You also turned back the edge of his sword, and you've not made him stand in battle. Um, there's just shame after shame has come upon the, the people of God because they have not obeyed God, and God has not blessed them as a result. Verse 44, you've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Now, if this is talking about the kingdom of David and now the loss of that kingdom uh, because the crown has been cast into dust, remember with me the last king over Jerusalem of the national church. That was Zedekiah. And Zedekiah, when Babylon finally came and captured the king, King Zedekiah, what did they do? They captured him. This is the king. And the Babylonian king said, get all of his sons. They got all of Zedekiah's sons, and they killed him in front of his dad, their dad. And then they poked out Zedekiah's eyes. And they carried Zedekiah into exile. Now, what's, what's the vision? What's the symbolism there? King Zedekiah, king over the national church, king over Jerusalem. You will never have a royal successor. We just killed them all. You will never again see with your eyes the kingdom of God, you call it, established again here. It's done. It's gone. That was the imagery they were being given is that God's covenant people are now defeated in bondage and exile. Now God said, it was part of my plan. I had the condition you didn't obey that I would raise up a people. I raised up Babylon. They came and they got you. They took you into exile. And so the psalm is going with that. Verse 46. How long, O Lord, is the question. How long is this exile? How long is this, this judgment that we deserve going to happen? Well, I don't have time to give you all the references. But it was 70 years. God says, I'm going to send you into exile for 70 years. Now, if you keep that number in mind, think about it, these next verses make sense. Because when he's saying, How long will you hide yourself forever? Now, 70 years is a long time. Let's say you go into exile as a 20 year old. They want you because you, you're good, going to be a good slave, a good worker. So they take the 20 year old, and you're in 70 years in exile. Well, you're not going to be done for not, until you're 90. If you go into exile at 30 or 40, you know, you're 100, you're 110. Chances of you going back to Jerusalem are pretty slim. Only the younger ones will ever make that path back to Jerusalem. The numbers go way down by the time they go back to, ex, 
back to Jerusalem. Because of that, the exile is 70 years. And he says, this seems like forever. 70 years is a long time. Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember my span of life, God, that my span of life is. For, for what vanity have you created all the sons of men? I mean, I, I'm going to die soon, in other words. You know, what man can live, verse 30, uh, 48, what man can live and not see death? We, we all soon die. He can deliver, can he deliver his soul from the grave? Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants. How I bear in my bosom the reproach of all my pe many peoples, with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Good point the psalmist makes. Mercy. If I have any hope, it's mercy. God, remember how you were merciful to David. Remember your loving kindnesses. I'm going to soon die. I don't have power to come up out of the grave. But God, you do. Remember to be merciful to me. Look at my span of life. Look how weak I am. Look how small I am. Look how short my time is. And be merciful to me or I really have no hope. And then the psalm ends and just kind of blows you away. Psalm 50, verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. That's a... Because we don't think deeply enough like covenant... We don't live great enough. Doctrine produces great men and women. And what he just did in verse 52, I, I rarely see this. What did he do with verse 52? He said in verse 52, God's glory is more important than my comfort. Do you see that? When he says, I want to exalt the Lord forever. Blessed be the Lord forever. God, it all comes down to you being blessed. I am not in a comfortable place right now. I am exiled. I have been taken off as a slave. And I will literally soon die. He may, the psalmist Ethan may be an old man at this point. He says, I am not living long. Blessed be the Lord. Your glory. Let me spend my days thinking about your glory. How many of us do that? About God being blessed. That we do that before our own comfort. That's a big place to get to. And a great application to think through. Now, as you think through, where's the hope in this psalm? The hope he starts to, to reveal is still in the Lord. It's in God being blessed. It's in God being true. It's in God being loving, merciful or loving kindness, giving His loving kindnesses to us. It's, that's where the hope is. The hope is not in a revival of the national church. The psalmist knew that's done. That's over. That's been spurned. It's been cast off. It's been rejected. The New Testament, people should have seen this coming. In the New Testament, we still have Jews living when Christ shows up and they say, are you now going to revive the national church? And Jesus, 
y'all should know that's not where I'm going here. That's not going to happen. You could, maybe you should have read Psalm 89. That you, you've already rejected that whole notion. That part of the covenant's gone. There needs to be a new covenant. And I, so I want us to think through that. Uh, look at, uh, let me just run you through some quick verses. Look at Romans 1, verse 3, so that you see why some of this is happening. Romans 1, verse 3. Might have jumped over it. Uh, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Why is that important? See, Christ Jesus was born a descendant of David. Because the covenant was made to David, confirmed in David. That there would be someone on the throne of David again, who is a descendant of David. Christ shows up, a descendant of David. I thought you killed all the royal descendants. No. Now we have a descendant emerge who is Christ himself. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 20. First Thessalonians 1, verse 20 says, well, it can't be verse 20 because it's only 10 verses. Let's take verse 10. How about that? And to wait for his son. So we're, we're here waiting for his son from heaven, Paul says, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Rescues us from the wrath to come. That's what we need. We need someone who rescues us. He has to be a descendant of David. He comes, he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected to give us his righteousness because we messed up. To take God's wrath, because that's what we deserve, and to rise to the throne of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that was God's covenant with God, that that would happen. And it's happening, and it has happened, just as God said. And the psalmist is crying out for that. Uh, Look at the passage we looked at last week, Luke 24. And let me just remind you of of one of the themes there we saw last week, Luke 24, and take you a little different route, maybe. Luke 24 and verses 44, 46. Verse 44, now Jesus speaking to those that he was walking with on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There's something in Psalm 89 that was written about Jesus. He was one who was anointed. He's the only anointed one in this New Testament. He's the anointed one. He's the one that brings covenant fulfillment that Psalm 89 is talking about. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus is it written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Now, what Christ could have done with those people on the road to Emmaus, he had all a long time with them, uh, he could have taken them through every book in the Bible and says, see, here's Christ here, and here's Christ there, and here's Christ here, and just keep going. He could have done that and probably did a lot of that. He could have also reminded them of covenant. 
and thinking through where Christ was. If you go back to the, the covenant that God made with Abraham, let me just show it to you real quick. Genesis 17. I know I'm running out of time, and I know a discipleship class that's so awesome you're going to want to get to, so i got to get out of here so I can get into there, okay? Genesis 17. Here's this covenant. God says, verse 2, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Verse 4, As for me, behold my covenants with you, and it's, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Don't miss that. That God is saying to Abraham, I'm not just making a national church. He begins to say, the national church will at some point become an international church. I'm going to make you the father of nations. It won't just be a national thing. Uh, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. But notice the stipulations. Verse 14, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The covenant can be broken. And the covenant was broken. He says, I want you to have a sign on yourself that you are my people. And that was circumcision. And the New Testament becomes baptism according to Colossians 2. And I want you to be marked out as my people, you and your children, but teach them the stipulations. If you don't mark, or if you're not marked out by the sign, if you don't obey the commands, you violate the covenant. And violating the covenant is a big deal when you spurn and cast off this agreement. Because you're saying, I don't need a Savior. I don't need a God who redeems. I don't need a God who elects or predestines or sends a son who dies on the cross, who's buried and raised. I don't need any of that when you spurn the covenant. The covenant's a big deal. It says, understand it. I'm going to make you, Abraham, a national entity. But then I'm going international as well. Um, well, Christ came to the Jews first, the national church, when Christ showed up. John 1.11 says he came to his own, but what did his own do? His own did not receive him. They rejected him, and they spurned him. And then God raised up the apostle Paul, says the Jews have rejected and spurned. Go to the Gentiles. Go and he told all the disciples, go to every ethnic group, go to every tribe, nation, and tongue, and raise up for me a people. Share the good news. And if they believe in Christ, they will be saved. They will be my people. And so now God has a church that's every nation, tribe, and tongue. And it was all based on covenant. God's agreement from the beginning. Um, well, Psalm 89. Where does that leave you? If you're reading Psalm 89, you say, well, that's a long psalm. I never really got much out of it. Hope you're getting a lot more out of it today. Well, why is it there? Why is Psalm 89 there? It's there to let us know that without God's covenant, we have no hope. We've spurned and rejected it. If he doesn't come back to us in mercy and kindness, we have no hope. Well, he has come back to us in mercy and kindness, and he's come back to us in the person of Christ. 
And we can be in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are His people. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, then you are in this world without God and without hope. Your only hope in this life is that you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You must be in Christ. Or you're not going to heaven. There is no glory. Your days are short and your hope is small without Christ. That's what Psalm 89 is teaching. That's where it's taking us. The fulfillment of blessing is in Christ. Let's trust Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the big plan, the big picture. Though we are a small part, we, we kind of think we're a significant part. Our lives matter at least to us. We come face to face that they matter to you. That you reveal your loving kindness to us. And it takes us back. We're overwhelmed with your blessing, your goodness, and your kindness. Take away our hard hearts. Take away the thought that we are great and we're mighty and we somehow compare and we somehow have an argument before you. Father, take that from us and let us fall down like the holy ones before us and let us plead for mercy. Let us find saving grace We trust you, Lord, to be our Lord, our Savior, our only hope. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.